5: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
6: I'm Sam Edis,
5: and I'm
7: Amy Nelson. Welcome to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy.
6: This is a show about the world's most remarkable women, their professional and personal journeys. Together,
7: we'll hear from gold medalists, best-selling authors. And leaders of the world's most iconic brands.
6: Listen every Thursday or join the conversation anytime on Instagram at What's Her Story Podcast.
7: Sarah Lafleur is the founder and CEO of MM Lafleur, known for women's power casual workwear.
6: When you first started your career, Sarah, you did not intend to be an entrepreneur. You went into finance and you were a management consultant. What was the moment that changed that?
5: The moment I changed that was really because I didn't know what else I was going to do with my career, which very much at that point felt like my life. Um, I think the way many of us think about our careers in our in our 20s. But Sam, the way you just asked that question reminded me when I was working in management consulting, we had like a session on entrepreneurship. And there was a, a, a partner at the firm came and said like, well, you know, do you think any of you... are are entrepreneurs and looked around the room and I think one person out of 30, our class was 30 people raised um, his hand. And then he was like, well, what do you think about the rest of you? And he was like, and someone else said, well, I I don't know, maybe I'm an entrepreneur, maybe I'm not. And he said, well, if you're not sure about it, then you're definitely not an entrepreneur because an entrepreneur, they know in their hearts that they're an entrepreneur. And I was like, well, I guess I'm not an entrepreneur then, you know, like definitely like, I was, I was like, I definitely don't feel it. And if anything, my mother being an entrepreneur, I just saw how hard it was up close, you know, how much it spilled into our lives A- and her life really, like how much it affected her personally, you know, how difficult the people management side was and how friends that she worked with, they had falling out. and um, And I would often see her like... I always say, like, I always, I would, I would see her sipping whiskey by herself in the middle of the night when I would come down for a glass of water. So, like, I think having seen it up close, I was like, this is not for me. And it was really only when I left my last job, having only been there for four months, and so I, like, really kind of, like, rushed out of there without a, a plan B and... You know, didn't know what I was going to do next with my life that I was like, well, I've always had this idea. Maybe I should work on it.
6: That had to be a tough period of time. What was it like for you?
5: I think I I had been wandering as I think, you know, I I mean, I I certainly felt that way in my late 20s. Um, I'd left consulting. I um, applied to business school, didn't get in. I ended up taking this job at a private equity firm that I really respected and basically One week in, knew that like this was not a place where I was going to be successful. The culture was so different from what I was used to and what I knew I was going to you know be happy in, and so I felt like I gave it a good try, but I I I was so like miserable doesn't even begin to describe it. Like I I was getting you know I had nervous ticks. I would be like shaking in in my seat. I would get you know kind of anxiety attacks thinking about having to go to work the next day. And I, I really, I ran out of there. So, you know, I would say it was like one of the lowest moments of my professional confidence. I mean, lowest moments of confidence, period. And that was the way, that that was really how MM started, you know, not not knowing what to do next with my life.
7: It's really hard to start a business. A lot of people think about it, like, what were the first things that you actually tangibly did.
5: I kind of started with the formalities, which in retrospect was somewhat silly, but I think it was important for me to feel like I was committing to it. So I um, incorporated in Delaware and that that somehow made it seem real. It was LaFleur LLC. And that was a surprisingly easy process. And I was like, okay, I'm really doing this. And then I rented a tiny office space, which I gave up two months later because I realized I couldn't afford it. But it was when WeWork only had two buildings at that point. And I rented a a small $500 per month space. And that actually got me out of the house every day. So that was a good thing. And that was actually the, the first kind of weirdly logistical thing that I did. And then I just started talking to... Anybody who I thought knew anything remotely about fashion design, and I really did not know anybody in this world of fashion design. And you know, just to kind of give you a sense of of how much I didn't know, you know, the only way I could see myself getting connected to someone who worked in fashion design was through someone who I'd gone to school with, who had gone on to interior design school at RISD. And I was like, well, that's, that's a little bit closer to fashion design. Maybe she'll know someone. And then she happened to know one person who went to the fashion department and connected me with her. And so she was like the first designer that I had actually spoken with. And she ultimately was the one who introduced me to a headhunter. I knew that I wanted a co-founder from the get-go. I I wanted someone with actual design expertise who had worked in the high-end fashion world. That was really, really important to me because I wanted the clothing that we made at MM to really reflect the kind of clothes that you would get at a high-end fashion brand, and so a lot of people said, "Why don't you just kind of? Why don't you just design it? Why don't you just, you know, add a sleeve to a a, a theory dress, or you know, take a I don't know a Giorgio Armani suit, but make it for cheaper." And I was like, "No, no, no! You're, you're kind of missing the point. Like, there's a whole gap here in terms of what I'm looking for. I'm looking for." Clothing that is not only beautiful—of course, it has to be beautiful—but it, it has to be machine washable and wrinkle resistant, and it has to be super comfortable. And I, I never want to have to be, you know, pulling at the at the seams to make sure things are fitting well. I'm really trying to create something different. And so, ultimately, it was through this headhunter that I met my co-founder Miyako. And she's actually also Japanese. I'm half Japanese. And people think that, you know, we we met through the Japan connection, but, but we actually met in the meatpacking district. Like, you know, that was, we met through a headhunter. So um, that was probably like the next tangible step that I took.
6: How did you convince her to take a leap with someone who'd never been in fashion before? She'd had this illustrious career, been designing for Zac Posen. She was entrenched in the fashion world.
5: Was it a pitch
6: you had to give her or was she sold right away?
5: I think she was curious right away, and and I think in retrospect, I, I really see you know it's it's all about kind of where you are in your life, and I think if I had pitched a pitched it to her any other time, she she very likely would have said no. She this was when I initially started talking to her. This was 2011, so we were kind of coming out of the the recession, but she saw a lot of her colleagues. Um, in the fashion world get laid off. And she also saw a lot of you know, these fashion brands that she respected go under. And I think she was really, she was ha- going through her existential, her own existential crisis saying like, why should I be in fashion? Like when everything out there has already been designed, what is there to make? And I think she also sensed the enormous waste that exists in the high-end fashion world. You spend months and months putting together these fashion shows that are, you know, over and done in five minutes. And most of those clothes that end up on the runway are never to be seen again. And so when I came to her and said, like, look, there's this entire group of working women who think that everything out there right now doesn't meet their needs and th- and they want to be comfortable. And it's not like they want to be frumpy. You know, there's this like, I think that when people think of American working women, you know, immediately it's like, um, working girl, like sneakers and, and big shoulder jackets. And like the last thing you think is fashionable, right? Like that, that American women, working women, like are typically not associated with style. And I was like, "I, I think there's a real opportunity to, to change this. And, um, are you interested? And she, and she was like, yeah, okay. I'm curious. And she always says to me, or she said to me since then, she was like, apparently I said something along the lines of like, you know, I I don't know, I really don't know anything in fashion, but I'm not stupid. So I'm confident that I will, I will figure it out as I go along. And she was like, okay, like, why not? Like, why not take a chance on you? And so that, that is how it started. But I think it had to do with like where she was in her life and being kind of really curious about what, was there a different way to operate a fashion business?
6: And then, how did you fund the business?
5: Very haphazardly is how I would say it. So I, um, I the first thing I had done actually talking about one of the first things we did. I grew up in Japan, so I had a, a bank account in in Japan that I had been putting some money away in. And I called up my mother and I said, "I want you to you know help me transfer it all into this business account." And she was like, "All," and I was like, "Yes, all," I, which. I would not have the guts to do today. But I was 27 and, you know, I didn't have kids, no mortgage, like no responsibilities. I just had to worry about me. So I was like, let's just go all in. And I had $36,000 saved up at that point. So I went all in, put that into LaFleur LLC. And then I I asked my parents if they'd be willing to lend me the same amount. So um, they very kindly said yes. So we started with $72,000 in the bank account. And actually, that got me through the first year of of hiring Miyako because her rate was $10,000 um, to design a line of seven dresses. I paid $2,000 to my headhunter because he always took a 20% cut. And I always say it's the best $2,000 I ever spent on this business. And then, you know, I I think we spent like $10,000 to buy the fabric. You know, we were going to launch with a line of seven dresses. And one of the best pieces of advice that I got, and I still say this to um, entrepreneurs who are looking to manufacture things today, is don't hold inventory if you can. You know, just just have a sample and get orders against your sample and then go and place the order because you never know what's going to sell or how much of it is going to sell especially in the early days and you never want to be stuck with that inventory. So what we we did was we bought the fabric and we brought seven dresses and we we started doing these trunk shows and and we took orders based on that and then we would place the order at one of the factories in the garment district who we had to beg to work with us. You know, it was just really interesting. I thought like if you if you were willing to pay, anyone would take you on, but you know, no factory wants to take you on because they've see, they see designers come and go come and go all the time and they need consistent revenue. So I you know I said I'll pay extra. So please 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 take my orders. And and this this Korean gentleman agreed to, to manufacture these, these dresses for us. And then we would we would turn it around usually in two to three weeks because we had the fabric. And then we would rent a zip car, remember those, and then drive around the city and it would be me and my co-founder, my other co-founder Naree, she would be sitting in the passenger seat, and we would drive around and she would jump out and, you know, drop off the dresses and then jump back in the car again and then and then we would you know finish our day of delivery. So like that was that was really the early days of of how we got started. But seventy thousand dollars actually got me through that kind of initial phase. And it was only after that that we began. that's not even true. The first five years, I think, I was kind of collecting small checks as we went along. I, I raised maybe four million. In the first five years, and it wasn't until 2016, so yeah, five years into the business that we actually closed our Series A, and it took a really long time. Just to put a pin in that, because I think, you know, a lot of people who don't have
7: experience with entrepreneurship, they read the news and they're like, oh, this company started, and they raised a seed round, and then they raised a Series A, and then they raised a Series B, and people think there are these, like, discrete periods of time between doing that (laughs) But but for you, but for you it sounds like it was different. I know for me it's been different. For Sam it's been different. But like you kind of just were always kind of raising as you're growing. As I you're know
6: growing. people think I'm nuts. People will say to me, You're raising again and I'm kind of like, I never really stopped.
5: Correct, correct. Um and it was it was so funny because I think, you know, there were so many direct-to-consumer brands that are that were cropping up at that time. You know Warby Parker, Bonobos, Everlane, and they would always a- announce these funding rounds. You know, like so and so closes X round, raises X million dollars, and I was like, "What the hell am I doing wrong?" Like, because I was like, I was I, I had a, a quote unquote seed round basically going for four years, so <laughs> it, it was. It was it was incredibly messy, but I, I think like the piece of advice that that I've I've got and I pass on is like, first of all, all cash is green, and there's something to be said about a lot of. And I, it, it, you say it's friends and family, but like it, I mean, true. I, I think maybe I have like three f- true friends and family on the cap table. Everyone else is like the friend of a friend of a friend, and a lot of that. A lot of that capital is really. Um, In some ways, it's attractive because, you know, they're they're supporters of of you. They're not necessarily saying, okay, like, I'm expecting a a 20x return within a certain time period. Like, in some ways, it's very flexible capital. So so I got ample time to, I think, actually, like, make mistakes and also go slowly in in a way that I think when we got to our Series A – like, we were really late to raise our Series A, and we, we were told that as much, you know, that our revenue was kind of beyond what would people would typically consider a Series A round. But, you know, I think as a result, I got to maintain more control of the business. I think I had a better handle of what we were doing. So, yeah, it, it, I, I think there's, there isn't such a formula, and I think this is especially true of female-founded businesses.
6: If you had to do it over again, would you have done the capital raising any differently?
5: a really great question. I don't, and I have to start by saying like, I don't know how I could have done it differently. Like I I was a first time entrepreneur. Um, most investors didn't want to touch fashion with a 10 foot pole. Um, I had a really difficult time convincing VCs that this was a, a, a business worth backing. Um, and it really wasn't until like the revenue started to grow and, um, the trajectory was, was obvious that, that people were saying, okay, you know, I'm willing to take a chance. So also I would say I was, I was young and I was happy to live on a, I mean, happy is maybe a strong word, but you know, I was paying myself 48 K a year. Um, and then I was tutoring on the side and I did that for two years to make ends meet. And, I couldn't do that now. I've got three small kids and a mortgage. And I now, you know, I used to never go to the doctors, doctor in my 20s. And now I go, like, seemingly pretty regularly. So, like, it's just interesting. Like, I, now I would say I probably couldn't start a business without proper funding.
0: And
6: now, a quick break.
0: My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant.
4: Just go to Ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC Terms and Conditions apply. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy.
3: And my best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards
0: it.
5: I never seen a man
4: take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: I used to have so many men.
4: How this beguiling woman in her 50s, she looked like a million bucks, with zero qualifications,
0: she had a Harvard plaque
4: employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry.
6: She would probably have sex with one of her clients.
1: Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl.
4: Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
7: Another question about kind of the early days as you really grew through trunk shows. How did you find the people to host the trunk shows?
5: A lot of friends, a lot of girlfriends who helped me, and then a lot of coworkers. Um, one of them, her name was Lucy Deland. She was the COO at Paperless Post, um, and now she runs a, a VC. But she was a, a girlfriend from college, and I think you know she also ran a startup. So she just knew how important your your friends were and your network is in helping initially get your business off the ground. Um, so she said, you know, come host a trunk show in in my house. And her husband, I think, was at business school uh, at that time. So she invited a bunch of his business school friends who remain some of our best customers to this day, you know, almost 10 years later. Um, we did one in Washington, D.C., also hosted by, like, three of my college friends. And, yeah, it, it was very much, like, friends coming out of the woodworks to support me. My very first customer was actually my first one of my first bosses at Bain, um, the management consulting firm I worked at. And, um, also we, you know, I also talked to a lot of women in their twenties who were saying, I don't love my job. I'm trying to find the thing I'm actually passionate about. And and I say, I I totally understand that, you know, I've been there, but like, you know, do the best job that you can in the job that you're currently in, because, you know, that's going to lead to something else. And I have, I've really found that to be true. Um, you know, that friends and colleagues from previous places have, have really come to help me start the business.
6: I love that advice because I think that work ethic is so pivotal. We always remember someone's work ethic. You don't necessarily remember whether they were the perfect fit for that job or how their career trajectory looked, but you do remember their work ethic. It's great advice for young people. You can shine anywhere.
5: Yeah, for sure. And even, even if you know, you know, you kind of know like, oh, I'm not, this is not really my thing. I'm not really like this is not me at my best, but I have found that like just the connections that you make and hopefully you meet people you genuinely like and admire, regardless of what your job you're in. And and those relationships have been so important to me, just like personally, but, but also professionally and growing MM.
6: How have your sales evolved? Is that something that still keeps you up at night today, or does it take care of itself at this point?
5: Right now we are probably ninety-five percent online, are and and we've gone through so many phases, you know, I would say Brick and mortar or just meeting our customers in person was always a really, really important part of our business. And so even though we said we were direct-to-consumer, we didn't necessarily mean that we were e-commerce only, like our, our stores and our, um, we call them showrooms. We have one in New York City and Bryan Park and one in Washington, D.C. But we had had, I think, nine you know, prior to, to COVID. And unfortunately, we had to close them all during the pandemic, and then we opened washington dc up in the fall of 2020 which ended up being kind of a catastrophe because we're located two blocks from the white house and i we couldn't even access our store for like six weeks around the insurrection i mean it was it was madness um so um it's been a really really tough couple of years for brick and mortar retail but we did open up our brian park showroom in fall of 21 And then um, we're looking to open up three more Vizier. So we're we're really leaning back into in-person retail stores. E-commerce is kind of the thing that that kept us going, you know, even through the pandemic. And we had this really, really hard moment in the early days of the pandemic when, you know, we really didn't understand what COVID was. And there was this big decision point. We had just closed all of our stores, we had furloughed all of our retail employees. And um, we had to make a decision about whether to keep the warehouse open. And I knew that if we closed the warehouse, our sales would go to zero. You know, we literally wouldn't be able to ship anything out. We would have to furlough the entire company. Or we could keep the warehouse going and at least bring in e-com sales. Um, And we decided to go with the latter and and try to take as many precautions as we possibly could to keep our, our warehouse team safe you know, that, that, those were kind of like the real challenges that we were going through in the early days of the pandemic. And so Sam, to your question about like sales, do they take care of themselves? They never take care of themselves. I would love to be in a place where I was like, you know what, there's just like recurring revenue on a daily basis. But like I, I, and the rest of my team, you know, we're watching the numbers like a hawk. And um, it's just, it's fascinating also how much What's going on in the world affects your numbers. You know, Roe v. Wade, that decision came out, and frankly, the weekend that followed—terrible for sales—and you know, whenever there's bad news in, and the recession is certainly looming, and and so that's that's kind of a real risk that that we're facing. But I also think like that's actually one of the fun—maybe too strong a word—but I think, uh, yeah, I, I guess I, I would call it fun. There, there's a. Um, There's an element of like, okay, you always have to react to what's going on. And like retail, you can actually be quite nimble. You know, you can come up with new tactics, new marketing pushes, new price changes, new promotions. Like there are actually so many levers at your disposal. And I think one of the reasons I never get tired of, of, um, never get tired is maybe the right word. I never bored. Yeah. Never get bored of running a retail business is because it keeps you on your toes constantly, constantly, constantly. How
6: did the pandemic changes in fashion impact you now that everything has become more casual?
5: I mean, we saw it in our own dressing behavior in the very beginning. You know, we just, we, MM LaFleur, was very much a company that was dressing women who went to the office, who were in places where they were being seen and had to look presentable. And I, I don't necessarily mean just, like, people who, who were lawyers and bankers. I mean, I think anyone, really, like, uh, anyone who had a professional job, who um, had to dress a certain way. And, I mean, I even remember this about myself in the early pandemic days. Like, I just stopped wearing makeup. I was like, who the F cares? <laughs> like, I'm just like, and, and you know, uh, it was the very early days. And, and, and we saw, you know, consumer demand obviously drop. And there was this moment where we were like, "What is the point of MM in this new world? Like, does our is our business even relevant?" And I think for the first two to three months, I, I was really unsure. And I think actually, as the pandemic went on, we started to hear from customers. There were a few things that we did, kind of just at, at the get go. We we had these like perfect travel pants. We called them the Colby origami suiting pants. But actually, I kept on wearing them in the early days of the pandemic because they had this elastic waistband and it was like made from this like super comfortable fabric. And so I was like, you know, what if we named these the Colby joggers instead of the origami suiting pants? And sales grew by 8X just based on that name change, you know, And, and just positioning things differently. Yeah. So that was really wild and we just started making small small tweaks like that because i think we were always proud of the fact that our clothes were meant to be comfortable like even even if they were meant you know to be clothes that you were going to be seen and they were always meant to be comfortable so i think a lot of it was like could we just reframe them in a different way and and customers reacted really really well to that and i think as time went on we said like okay what is actually the new way that women are going to be dressing cuz you know i think to your to my earlier point of like you know what is the point of mm a lot of the angst that I think women and people in general feel about getting dressed, it's not as though that that disappeared with COVID. You know, in fact, I think what we're hearing a lot now is like, I've now gone hybrid and I don't know what dressing for a hybrid work environment looks like. Or I have a lifestyle now where I'm in the office, I'm working from home in the morning, but then I go into the office in the afternoon. And everyone's saying that we can dress a little more casually, but I don't actually know what that means. And so we're getting a lot of questions. And I think MM was always created to solve this, like, problem. And I would say, like, a lot of it is angst. You know, we talk about women on average spending two more weeks per year versus men getting ready in the morning, which is crazy, right? It's like, what would you do with that two weeks? But it's not as though, like, suddenly that two weeks was given back to all women because of COVID. Like, I think actually, if anything, women are just as stressed. You know, I'm speaking also for myself, but like a lot of women put on weight during the pandemic. And so I'm like, like, how do I dress? You know, do I buy new clothes or do I buy things that kind of like can flex with your size? And so, you know, as a business, the direction we've been leaning into, uh, we're calling it power casual. And that's really A lot of customers who were dressing business casual were saying, actually, the new look is power casual. So, you know, if you've got business formal being kind of the most formal way of dressing and suiting, and then you've got business casual a little more, you know, dressed down, and then you've got like casual all the way at the bottom, then power casual is this like new thing somewhere in between business casual and creative casual where, you want to show that, like, you're looking, you're looking ready to to get down to business. You're 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 there and you're presentable. But it's it's flexible. It's clothes that you could also be going out to, um, drinks with your friends in, or picking up your kids from school in. Like, it doesn't look like oh, she was at the office and she just like walked over here. So that's the look that we are, pushing forward and really talking to our customers about, and has really um, allowed our our business to rebound and, and grow again. And, you know, what I'm focused on for 22 and beyond. And now a quick break.
4: This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Just go to Ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC Terms and Conditions apply. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy.
3: My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and and work towards it.
5: I never seen a man take care of my mother
4: the way she needed to be taken care of. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily Podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels.
5: multiple times yeah
7: how did you find inspiration or whatever you needed to push through those moments
5: they're scary it honestly just felt like one it's like a cliche of one foot in front of the other but like I think if I knew if someone had like like tapped my shoulder and on in like March 2020 and then said like hey you know I know everyone's saying like this is gonna be like a, a two-week thing or maybe a three-month thing but actually like you're not going to even get close to normal for another two and a half years. Good luck. I think I would have just been like, well, that's it. Like, I don't have it in me. Like, I am calling it, it quits. But like, I, you know, I, this is about like, I think the human spirit being incredibly resilient. And when you're actually just like in it day to day, you're like, well, I just have to keep going. Like, there is no other option. And so we, so we did. And my... I have to say like I have a really I have a team that I love a lot of them have been with me for a really really long time now you know we're talking five plus years um, I think the majority of our team has been with us for five plus years and so yeah I mean I felt like I owed it to them to really see it through because they were willing to stick it through you know I mean it's it was such a hot job market it still is they could have they could have gotten a job in so many other places but I felt like they kept showing up, and so I had to too.
6: You talked about how clubby the garment center manufacturing world can be, but fashion is just as clubby. Has the fashion industry accepted you?
5: I think they honestly don't know what to do with us, and it was. I have. I think I. I we have been very lucky to receive a couple of awards by fashion groups, but I, whenever we we went to um, the kind of award ceremony they would be like, who are you? Like, we've never heard of you. No. <laughs> where do you sell through? And we're like, just correct. And they're like, what? You know, like, you're not like, what departments are you with? Or like, you know, where do you advertise? Like, I, again, like I'm, I'm actually specifically remembering this one award that we got where we were sitting at a, a table with like a bunch of publishers because that's, you know, it's basically the, the the old school network is like publishers, department stores, and fashion brands. It's like, That's the, that's the world that you operate in. And if anything, actually, I remember when I first, when we were first launching, I met, I got to meet with an editor um, who had been, I can't even remember, but she was at, you know, I can't, Harper's or Vogue or one of those very well-established fashion magazines. And she looked at my dress and she was like, but that's so boring. Like, what would I, what would I have to say about that dress? And I was, I was really hurt by that comment. But I, you know, I think in retrospect I understand. She was, you know, for with magazines, it's like they want things that are fla- flashy and eye catching. Eye catching and and something being practical. You know, something is like, oh, it's a sheath dress that's machine washable and wrinkle resistant, has pockets. It's like, nah, that's like so not sexy, right? Like so, I felt like I got written off by the fashion world, or I had, you know, I, I was like, well, they're not gonna, they're not gonna want anything to do with us. We're gonna have to just like pave our own way. And I think, to to some extent, that is that is um, that's been a fine strategy for us. I do have this draw, jo- uh, this this dream though, and because now apparently it's all about us manifesting it. I'm just going to put it out there, which is I really do want. I want Miyako to win a CFDA one day, and she is someone who is so deserving of that. You know, she is such a an amazing. Uh, talented designer and actually so also intelligent she's not just artistic you know she's really thinking about okay what are her problems and how am I going to try to solve them and so I'm just going to say this you know Anna Wintour if you're listening I, I want you to take a look at Miyako Nakamura.
6: Stay tuned for part two of our two-part series with Sarah LaFleur. Sometimes we have a guest that just warrants two episodes. We'll be talking about her infertility issues, her wildly unexpected childbirth outcome, her parenting journey, and we also give Sarah some parenting advice on how to manage the three-kid, or in Amy's case, four-kid juggle. Thanks for listening to
7: What's Her Story with Sam and Amy.
6: We would appreciate it if you leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, connect with us on social media at What's Her Story Podcast.
7: What's Her Story with Sam and Amy is powered by my company, The Riveter, at theriveter.co and Sam's company, Park Place
6: Payments, at parkplacepayments.com. Thanks to our producer, Stacey Para, and our male perspective, Blue Burns.